Today is April 26, 2012. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Anastasios Singunis, who we call Tasso. Can you pronounce your name? Jingunis. Jingunis. Okay. It's actually easier than he looks. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> who is an assistant professor in the Department of Physiology and Neurobiology at the University of Connecticut. His lab uses molecular, genetic, and physiological techniques to examine how neuronal activity is shaped and what mechanisms regulate neuronal excitability under physiological conditions and fail in pathophysiological states like epilepsy. Hi, Tasso. Hello. So around the room, we've got Fidel Santamaria. Hi. How are you? Hi. We've got Charlie Wilson. Hello. We've got Carlos Palladini. Hello. And we got me. I'm your host, Salma Qureshi. So let's just get into it. So, um, Tasso, you study uh, the mystery of how fast calcium kinetics are transduced into the calcium-activated slow after hyperpolarization current, which is a key regulator of neuronal excitability via um, spike frequency adaptation, for example. So you've spent the last few years looking at molecular components that might perform this function in hippocampal neurons and, and have come up with a candidate mechanism. So um, can you tell us about that story? Yes. Uh the slow HP was identified in the early 80s, and one of the things that was very critical for it was very slow time course. Uh, as the calcium dyes were developed and imaging took place, it was recognized that the calcium time course and the slow HP activation kinetics, which are calcium dependent, were very, very different. And as a result, many people were trying to address the issue of that, and there were multiple theories. However, there was no molecular components to match any of those theories. So over the last few years, what I have done, starting as a postdoc and as a faculty, was to identify one of those molecular components and to suggest that what calcium does is it binds to a diffusible calcium sensor, which then moves the plasma membrane and with not clear mechanism yet, gates the slow HP current. As a result, the idea is that calcium and the slow HP is linked together, however, the slow speed is reporting the cytosolic calcium that are far away from the membrane, which is very different from what you have with other calcium activated potassium channels like the SKs and the BKs, where calcium next to the plasma membrane is what is activates them. So the slow speed is more reflecting the average bulk calcium. And evidence for that have been through imaging studies and through um, studies using calcium buffers. So the idea that the diffusible sensor could act with the slow HP was definitely not new. Uh, it was not my idea. Instead, it was one of the theories. And what my contribution has been is to provide a, a sensor, a, mo a molecule that could possibly act for it. Now, in hippocampus, I identified hippocalcin, but it's also not a complete story. Because when you knock out hippocalcin, you only affect 70% of the slow HP current or the slow HP in general. Therefore, there are other sensors. And the family of hippocalcin, there are about four or five members. So any of them could act on it. We don't know yet. But we do, do know one of them. Neurocalcin Delta is also a candidate that was worked on by another lab, Rodrigo Andrés lab. So the picture that is emerging, combined with the modeling studies, previous calcium imaging studies, and my molecular work, is that the slow HP is carried by diffusible sensor who has the ability to move the membrane and engage this process. So, like, you, you mentioned the, the slow HP, and it seems like a great mechanism or a great phenomenon that 
controls the firing activity of neurons. So that, that, that a neuron will not fire above a certain rate. But there are a number of different mechanisms that underlie the slow AHP. Is that, is that not correct? So different cells have different ways for getting an AHP that has a slow time course. So the AHP, as a general, it's not needed by one entity. Right. Uh, and what you have is components. So when calcium enters the cell, you have what's called a fast AHP. What you have is a medium AHP and a slow AHP. And the way we define them as fast, medium, and slow is based on how long do they last. So the fast component, which is mediated by BK channels, is mediated by um, BK channels. It lasts for about 50 milliseconds, maybe less. Uh, the medium HP, which is mediated by SK channels, can last for about 100 to 100 milliseconds, and you have the slower HP will last for many seconds. However, I have to say that this division took place based on neocortex pyramidal neurons, as well as C1 pyramidal neurons. If you were to go to Rafe, um, nuclei, you find out that you can still get a long-lasting AHP there, which is mediated by VSKs. So yes, as far as the cell is concerned, there are many ways you can create an AHP. The one I'm working on is primarily defined by three ways. That's calcium-dependent, it's insensitive to apamine, which is uh, SK channels inhibitor. It's also insensitive to caridetoxin, a low concentration of TA, which are BK channel inhibitors. It's also insensitive to TTX, so it's not a sodium-dependent potassium current. Instead, it's a slow component that is resistant to most of the other pharmacological agents, but sensitive to modulation by norepinephrine or by dopamine or serotonin. So that's how we define it. So it's kind of an artificial definition that we as physiologists yeah. have in order to assign molecular components. But yeah, as far as the neuron is concerned, you can have multiple ways to create a slow AHP. You can have an internal store to release calcium, and then you can have an SK channel there in order to um, activate. But there are still, still distinctions, and I think one of the key distinctions about the slow AHP is because you have it to be a diffuser it will be less sensitive to buffering. If you're going to have calcium buffers and you have, let's say, an SK channel or a BK channel, you are most likely going to have a curtailed response. It will be get much faster. The slow HP, in the presence of a buffering, at least the concentration that we find in neurons, could still be maintained. Let me give you an example. So granule cells uh, express calvaline at very high levels. The buffering capacity is about um, 200 which is compared to pyramidal neurons, which is in the hundreds. Uh, but yet, the slow HP current you get is gorgeous. It's very large and very slow. If you were to measure the SK response, it's very tiny. It could be because there's not enough SKs, but probably also because calvining is there. So you can the great thing about the slow HP and using a diffusible system is that it can still be maintained and activated in a cell that has highly buffered uh, calcium. That's really what makes it unique. Now, of course, you can know it ahead of time. So that is really the key. But the definition we have is an artificial definition, and it's primarily for us to figure out uh, components. And that goes back to how we do science. We like to identify, at least from the point of view by physics and cell biology, what components are there in neurons. And in order to do that, you need to have to classify the different responses. Um, and this is why with potassium channels, it was a huge surprise. If you go back to the 1990s and you read reviews by Johann Storm, I think you have six, maybe, potassium 
currents really describe. You have two calcium, and you have maybe A type. Uh, you have the I, the D type potassium silence, but then the cloning took place, and all the nineties, and now we have hundred genes. But how do you get hundred genes to mediate only six processes? So that's a challenge, and so we need to classify things and. The definition of SOSP I'm using is an artificial definition, but we have decided as physiologists that's how we're going to decide. And by knowing what it is, we'll try to find what components. But to come back to your original question, any type of cell can create an AHP with different mechanisms, and it could look long-lasting. Doesn't have to be through the slowest but I study hippocampus. One of the th- attractive uh, things about the slow HP that's interested some people is the modulation by norepinephrine and acetylcholine. Yeah. The, and that seems to be sort of built into the slow HP that you're studying much more than it would be in a slow HP that's just caused by SK channels. And, 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 um, I wonder about the mechanism of that because the slow HP, as you're describing it, is actually a little family of biochemical mechanisms. And I wonder if the different ones are targets of different modulators or are they all equally modulated by acetylcholine or or norepinephrine? No, I think that's the key. Um, That the slow HP is emerging is like a series of biochemical steps. Calcium binds to sensor. Uh, recent work by Rodrigo, uh, Rodrigo Andretti is that the two changes are also com- it's a downstream effect of calcium, and that's what really gates the slow HP. So you can imagine that the different neuromodulators could target different things. You could target the channel, you could target the uh, the kinases or phosphatase that control PIP2 levels, or you can actually target hypocalcin directly and whether or not hypocalcin can interact with these targets. Because we still don't have a good picture of everything, I think it's difficult to know the mechanism. But I would say the most attractive mechanism could be um, the PIP2 and PIP5 kinase. And and this is just a hypothesis. So for GQ mechanism, we kind of know that PIP2 hydrolysis will lead to inhibition of slow HP. That's fine because when you activate GQ mechanism, you activate phospholipase C and you will drive PIP2 levels. But how do you explain PKA activation or MAP kinase activation? Well, P5 kinase has a really nice um, neuromodulation on its own. It's not as known, but if you were to express P5 kinase in HeLa cells, you're finding out that you get 50-60% of its activity already inhibited. And what happens with P5 kinase is PKA shuts down its activity. So for it to work, it needs to be dephosphorylated. And there's a recent paper in Neurory which identified P5 kinase in postsynaptic cells, because historically, when we think about PIP2 and PIP5 kinases, we think presynaptic terminals. I think the work by uh, Pedro de Camille, in which he shows that you have this synaptojamine, you have all kinds of PIP5 kinases that are all in the terminal, and PIP2 is necessary for vesicles um, to be released. But now we start finding that it also exists in the postsynaptic cells. And there is a work said that calcium to and MDA receptors initiates a dephosphorylation of PIP5 kinase, which presumably causes PIP2 levels to increase. So you may end up having that, the story to become more simple than we think, but PIP5 kinase might be the hub and PIP2 together and fairly economically explain all the modulation. But this is only a theory and it's yet to be tested. The challenge is how do you go about testing it? 
it's hard to make a P5 kinase knockout because the mice dies. You also have three different isoforms. In the brain, you have P5 gamma. So that could be the way to do it. But it's probably required to have more of a Krilog system. But even then, if you were to remove P5 kinase and you change the PEEP2 levels of the cell, how many things are going to change? And that's a, an enzyme that's so critical. So I think it's going to be very difficult to demonstrate directly uh, in neurons that P5 kinase. However, hex cells might come into play. You can express KNCQ channels or any channel that is PEEP2 sensitive over express P5 kinase and ask a fairly simple question. Does norepinephrine through better res receptors shifts the properties by targeting P5 kinase? That may not go to demonstrate that's the mechanism in neurons, but it will provide a really good basis for what's happening. But the reason why I wanted to start the slow XP was primarily for that reason. Neuromodulation has been my interest in how do you how does slow XP get neuromodulated? But I ran to the problem we did not know any of the molecular components. So how do you go about studying something without knowing what it is? And I would say the one that really fascinates me the most isn't so much the norepinephrine effect as it is the inotropic effect. So Kennedy receptors, the inotropic glutamine receptors, will get activated, they inhibit the slow HP. And they inhibit it through a GI mechanism. So they're using a G protein, but yet this is an ion channel. It has no evidence that we bind to a G protein, but yet it's been reproduced many times that GIs coupled to Kennedy receptors at concentrations of Kennedy that do not induce the current lead to the modulus of the So how does that happen? That's really one of my ultimate questions. But to reach that, I have many, many steps to go because it's already complicated to think about the Kennedy aspect. So you think the Kennedy receptor is uh, secretly also uh, a metabotropic receptor? Yeah. Like I don't think so. That's been published by uh, Barry Lancaster, published that in Neuron. Uh, then he followed up in J Neuroscience. Then Chris McBain and have shown that. that if, and actually, we know which Kennedy subunits are important. It's one of the, I believe it's, I forgot the exact subunit. But the evidence are there that at low concentration of kinase or glutamate, you can activate kinase receptors through, which engage a metabotropic action, which leads to slow HP current. Now, this means that the slow HP is a great assay to study this. Other things probably modulate. But yeah, it's, been, it's, 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 it's a very reproducible physiological effect. And... Actually, when I joined Roger's lab, that was really the first thing I wanted to study. I wanted to study the kinase modulation of the slides. Because I guess I don't know enough about this kind of thing to, to say anything, but it seems to me that just examination of the structure of the kinase molecule would have revealed whether it had a G-protein binding site. No, it binds to directly to the anotropic receptor. It binds to the kinase receptors. It is, we know exactly. It just is engaging, activating kinase receptors, which is the ion channel, leads to a GI activation, which leads downstream to block the slow HP current. So, well, a similar question about hippocalcin. What do we know in terms of the molecular structure of hippocalcin, what it's interacting with other than PIP2? Is that the main mechanism by which you think it's actually we don't know if it, doing so, anything to the... So what we do know is the following. We know that the, the hippocalcin has a meristolimoidy, and that meristolimoidy can to bind, to bind to the plasma membrane, right. and specifically to bind to PIP2. So it has a very high affinity for PIP2. So you will find PIP2, and that's where it's going to bind the membrane. Uh, we also know that it has three calcium binding sites. 
and we know it's globular. We don't know how the crystal structure for it, but most likely it's going to be very similar to other family members like neurocast delta or um, recovering. And we don't, and we do know some of its binding partners through proteomic studies that have been to be um, phosphodiesterase, calcium active phosphodiesterase. It's also tubulin. Exactly. So we know very little about it. Yeast to hybrid studies have failed to find something really that is the smoking gun. Here we find explanation. So as we find molecular components, at some point you think the story gets simpler, but it also gets complicated because how does hypocalcin engage this process? Does even have a direct function to it? What if it just changes something that eventually leads to slow HP, but that's not the very last step. Um, PIP2's role, yeah, it looks like PIP2 gaining is what it is, but do we know for fact? We can reconstitute the slow HP. And the more factors you find, the less likely it is to reconstitute an hexane. So the time course, though, is mostly determined by the binding of the calcium to the hippocalcin and then this switch and then the docking and that kind of that's where the, or is it the is it the tail end is it the signaling of the I think there are two components to it I channel. think the calcium binding to the hypocalcin is a big contributor because it's a slow binding and actually Charlie Wilson demonstrated that in a nice modeling paper that, that if you have a slow binding you have to be slow I mean it's just, it's just, you have no choice for that time because will be slow but I think there's a second component and that's the Kensico channels at least the CA3 neurons that also contribute to the time course so you cannot just have it's only one or the other. I think you are somewhere between. And that could be um, which one is the right limiting step. I'm not really sure, but I think both are slow events. Mm-hmm. So one of them will be a little slower in one cell type, maybe it's something else in another cell type. Are these AHPs, these slow components, really variable across neuronal cell types? Or are they like kind of locked into a certain set of... Uh, they are slow. They're not Just identical, like, yeah. and part of that has to do with the calcium source. If you're going to have also, uh, CA3 also engages calcium, induced calcium release, so you're getting a second wave of calcium that is going to contribute to this. Generative. CA1 pyramid neurons um, don't have that, they're faster. But if you uncage calcium, you're always getting a slow rise. So clearly, an event has to be to be slow. And I would say, slow calcium binding, and in my view, CA3 cells, slow KCQ channel kinetics. So do you, um, on cage calcium, it depends where you, do you have hot spots of this um, uh, currents in the soma or the dendrites? Uh, so if you, so the most recent work is from Pakasa's group and what they think in amygdala neurons is if you were to depolarize the cell, getting a slow speed of certain magnitude, let's say 100 becomes. If you now cage calcium in the soma, you don't get the same full amplitude. So you're getting some of it, let's say 30%. I don't remember the exact number. Mm-hmm. If you go to the dendrite, proximal dendrite, you uncage there, you get some. So it's clearly some of the soma of the dendrite. Mm-hmm. So, but that could also be from cell type to cell type. So we don't know exactly, since we really don't know all the channels that mediate it, where the whole process is. But I would say it is definitely somewhat of the dreading. Based on the voltage clamp experiments, clamp it really nicely. I would think it's definitely the soma. Um, and how much the dendrites does it go, it's not completely clear. Since there's so many steps in it, each one of them could be a little different, right? The, the sensor could be everywhere. The channel could be different. Yeah, I mean, it's just for the function of the channel. So if it right. is more... So, 
close uh, proximal dendrite and somatic. It's more related to this theory of uh, uh, idea that it's related to epilepsy in terms of being uh, a way to slow down firing um, rates if it were more like escape channels that could be in dendrites and even spines, some kind of clamping mechanism uh, to compartmentalize. Yeah, to me, I'm, I mean, you don't know ahead of time, but it would make sense to me to be close to where the actual potential initiation mm -hmm, is. Mm -hmm. You want to put it somewhere to control it fairly well. So it would be somewhere either in the soma or maybe apical redress, but the very proximal end of that. That would make the most sense, but there is no need to assume that it doesn't happen in dendrites. Uh, we have many examples of, of like IH. It gets bigger and bigger as you go further away to the, to the dendrite. So you may have, who knows, the more you study, as long as, as soon as you know what you have, you can actually go and find out and compare different places and see where they are. It's possible from different sets. So like in this molecule, uh, hypocalcin, um, so if it is diffusing, then in principle, only half of those activated by calcium will bind to the membrane, right? The other ones will move far away from the membrane, and if they are in the dendrite, in the, in the proximal dendrite in the soma, um, more are going to remain, even if they're activated, they're going to remain in the cytosol. But do you have any idea of what they target? I mean, they, they might target? Well, I think the rate limiting step is the concentration of hippocalcin. The reason I say that is if you were to overexpress mm. in L5 cortical neurons, you get a much bigger slow speed. I do the same thing with calcium neurons. When you overexpress hippocalcin, I get a bigger slow speed. So for you to get a much bigger slow speed by overexpressing more hippocalcin, you would think that is the limiting factor. So that also means that the channel is probably not the limiting factor. You may have more channels than the center. And as a result, what the more difficult question is, do calcium, different calcium sources engage different sensors? If they're freely diffusible continuously, the answer will be no. But if they are going to be not as freely diffusible, you could have a different sensor, calcium source. We have one example like that. So the thalamus, if you record the slow HP in which you activate it with an L-type, uh, with a protocol that activates L-type volus genetics, you get a nice slow HP. You can do the same thing by using a protocol that activates T-type. So step at minus 90, go to minus 30. And you get a nice slow HP, both identical. However, if you apply UCL277, which is the slow HP inhibitor, it only inhibits the slow HP activated by the L-type calcium channels, but not the ones from a T-type. This is the same exact neuron. Uh -huh. If that finding, which I have no reason to doubt, suggests to me that the sensors probably are not simply equilibrated throughout the cytosol, but you may have hotspots, right. clusters. Yeah. But then how do you create that on a freely diffusible uh, sensor, unless the buffering and the interactions between the buffers. So, uh, back to my point is, the story gets yet simpler, but yet it's complicated. Right. And is it because you have different sensors now? Uh, what about the coupling? Does it mean that it's the sensor that is neuromodulated? Because if my P5 kinase theory was right. Uh, yeah, this reminded me of, um, of a paper I read by Michael Heuser's group. Uh, it was a modeling paper uh, that if you have 
buffers with different time constants, right? Like fast and slow, then they will not find they will not be in the equilibrium that we think they are. And then you can get this kind of, you can generate this kind of hotspot. For example, these are incomogeneities that could cause this type of behavior. Right. And actually, I think that's the basis of more of the modeling of, of mm -hmm. I think you use that rapid buffering and having buffers with different kinetics. Right. And the competition between them will give you a slow speed uh, well, yes, what looks like compartmentalization without spatial right, compartmentalization. Right, right. It's, it's a biochemical it's temporal compartmentalization. Yeah. Which might be the explanation. Yeah, and, uh, sure. And it, would, it, it makes some sense. I mean, it's, it makes sense retrospect. But One of the great things about the slow HP literature has been that it's that the people who have worked on it in the past have done a good job of enumerating the possibilities. And so at any one moment, if you jumped into that field, you could see, you could find someplace a very nice list of all the hypotheses. It's either this or it's that, or it's the other thing. And so it's very fun to get into that because you could say, well, I'll try to figure out between, you know, I'll try to eliminate possibility six <laughs> or something like that. And that was my approach. I came, you know, in the, when most of the work was done in the 1980s. At the time, I was not much in science. <laughs> I think I was in my toys playing a lot of outside in the beach in Greece. Uh, but when I came and became a postdoc, I went back and read the literature of the 80s and the 90s. And actually, that was the thing. I was like, great, I can actually see all the possibilities. I didn't have to come up with new possibilities. I just had to simply try to figure out which of the possibility was the one that makes more sense and which one I can find maybe a molecule that can explain it. And that has been my... I mean, my, the experiment I did with comparing the SK current uh, with different buffers and then compared to the slowest speed, I was by no means the first one to do that. And maybe I was the first one to put in the same exact neuron and measure the SK at the same time with the slowest speed current, but Pankasas had published two different papers, one on SKs, showing that buffers speed up the, slow, the SK current, and another one that slows them down. So they were... I just, so it was great. I mean, I was able, to, I didn't have to come up with new theories. I just had to. Are, are the slowest uh, components of the AHP uh, uh, evolutionarily older? I don't think so. I mean, to my knowledge, I don't think any invertebrate neurons have this type of a slow uh, The only thing that we do know is you know, we have SK currents, we do have BK channels, but I have never found a paper, to my knowledge, is describing that particular slide speed in anything but um, cortical neurons. I don't think even peripheral neurons have it. Oh. I don't think you motor neurons have it. I, I don't. So, so I don't energy 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 energy. Energy. Uh, so don't they don't exist like, like snails yeah. and all this. Uh, it has never theory. been described. It has, huh. It's always been an escape. You can get a very slow component, but mm -hmm. it's always blocked by abamine. So that type of modification, mm. even though hypocalcin, one idea that I once heard is like potassium channels have been evolving to compensate for faster currents, right? So sodium currents are compensated by fast potassium channels, and then the slowest potassium channels will be probably older, right? That's kind of 
one way of thinking about the evolution of diet. And I think that's exactly the exactly the wrong way to think about it. The, fa the fastest potassium channel, which is the inward rectifier that's uh -huh. that's not gated, is just blocked, mm -hmm. is super ancient. It's mm -hmm. got to be, maybe it was the first ever mm -hmm. voltage-dependent potassium channel, because it didn't have to have gating. It used, uh -huh. uses a block. And the, and it's it's really fast and maybe the smallest ones are the most sophisticated. Well, the it makes ones. sense because they integrate longer time. They have longer memory. But I think if you look at the cortex, right, you have a lot of activity in the cortex. You have tons of activity, so you're going to bring a lot of calcium to your system. Uh -huh. And you may need to have you need to have mechanisms to probably tell you you have way too much calcium. Uh, you need to stop firing, or you need to have something to allow to integrate that. So. Right. At the same time, you look at the cells, and their mechanism is very different. They have massive buffering capacity. So that is the other way to do it. So you can actually increase your buffering capacity so you can control calcium that way, or you can put slow HP. So I would say because of the cortex is firing so much, it is possible that you may need that. But it's unclear to, to know. I mean, it's just speculative. Yeah. They're great for making, those kind of channels are also great for making very slow oscillations. So in cholinergic cells in the striatum, there's a very slow oscillation, like five second period oscillation. It's, right, that's what I was asking about, yeah. more older animals in the evolutionary. And, so maybe slow oscillations are evolutionary uh, uh, new inventions. So uh, you seem to think fast things are better than slow things. No, I'm not saying wondering. better. No, 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 I'm not saying that. It's just like it seems. Well, I'm, I'm not. I don't want to debate the conversation to the evolution, but some older animals are in the chain. They seem to have slow waves, right? And they had like bursting and uh, uh, long, long oscillations. Oh, I see. You're thinking like in the stomatic ganglion. Yes. There's yeah. a lot of bursting. And then very long, long oscillations. The spikes can be long. The, there was no need to compensate for this fast action, uh, for the fa fast rise in the sudden curve. The, that apparently came later. Um, and that's what that's where my question is. I see. But also, Bill Spain has this recent paper, Higgs in Spain, which he feels that the slow HP function in the neocortex is to relieve inactivation of sodium channels. So slow type of inactivation. So that would work with more of the recent evolutionary aspect in which you have a lot of fast spiking, but they also inactivate and you have the two phases, the fast and the slow. You need something to bring out the slow. So the slow HP, by being such a long lasting hyperpolarization, brings enough of the slow type inactivation to be relieved. So that has been his most recent work. Or at least two thousand. So another thing that strikes me about the slow HP literature, which I think is incredibly great to read, is one of the. If I were to show students a, a, a topic and say, read the literature on this as an example of how science works, as opposed to, you could pick topics that would become an example of how science doesn't work. You know, how nobody ever comes to a conclusion. You could pick this one, though, as an example of how science does work. It seems that progressively, people are stepping closer and closer to getting the answer. And they did it by enumerating the possibilities in a very clear way. Most of the papers start with a sort of standard list of the well-known possibilities, and then says, I'm going to examine this one. And uh, one of the things that strikes me was remembering that I think I'm not sure, you can correct me, but I think it was Peter Schwentz's paper that said, maybe 
downstream from the calcium sensor, there's an enzymatic step that is slow. And uh, alternative, it could be binding to the calcium sensor slow. And this sort of set up as a dichotomy that one could hope to... It, it turns out that probably both of those are right. There's an enzymatic step downstream that's slow. There's also binding that's slow. And the tyrosomes are slower too, so it makes it all together. Yeah. yeah, the Krill group actually had some of the original ideas, partly to try to, co- to explain the effects of mobile muffers, because it is difficult to explain how could you put bacteria in your pipettes at low concentrations, and the calcium activated potassium channel gets slower. You should get faster. There was no way. Similarly, when um, Barry Lancaster caged the calcium buffer. As he was keep on caging, the rise would get slower and slower. Which, based on the knowledge of the time, that would be consistent with an immobile buffer in the membrane. But yet you are uncaging a mobile buffer. So, so the Krill group proposed a couple of those ideas. Yeah. And then uh, uh, Bob Froning also came up probably the most explicit stated that there must be something between calcium and most likely could be an enzymatic or some other messenger. And that was partly to explain that the slow HP activation follows somatic calcium measurements. When he measures calcium in the middle of the cell, slow HP follows a beautiful sigmoidal relationship. But when you look medium HP, that never happened. So, so it was there. Maybe it, has not, it had not been accepted to most people. But when you look at the data, and the ideas were there, people have proposed them. So my... my what I like to do is just fill in the blanks and hopefully find the molecules and be able to tell you what's the sequence of events. How does calcium use the slow speed? And eventually, how does it get neuromodulated? That is my current focus on it. Why do you think the calcium... Is it, you think it's important that it needs to dock? Why does it make this transition from a diffusible to an immobile? I think that way you can really create a high concentration of hypocalcium very close to your the target because by anchoring it there and you bring it closer it's really high concentration mm-hmm. if you're freely diffusible it probably doesn't get enough frequency to event I would be surprised that this if it doesn't and part of the reason you don't find a target for hypocalcium might be that it has very low affinity for its target as a result you may need to be anchored and come to extreme proximity to really have an effect well, and it changes conformational state Yes, it exposes a hydrophobic region, and then it goes... That allows it to... Then it will allow it to dock on the side of the protein. I mean, you can think about many things. PKC does that with AMPA receptors um, in order to tag them for... But we don't know that it's targeting any protein to dock to yet. We just know that it's going to the membrane. membrane, And what does it do next to that? It's unclear. And it could probably make it more specific, right? By reducing this the degrees of freedom, and then just exposing one side of the protein. Yeah. One other fact which is like different from those is uh, it um, removes the hippocalcin that's near the membrane from the diffusion equation. So it creates a diffusion concentration gradient in favor of the direction of the membrane, mm-hmm. uh, which could actually be... Yeah. Could also contribute. There's a model. Yeah, there's a model in there. <laughs> but also, the, the, what this work also allowed me to find and explore is that, you know, when I was studying as a graduate student, even as a postdoc, calmodulin is what I knew. Everything you talk about calcium sensors is 
it's Kalmogenin. It's all about Kalmogenin biosteroid MDA receptors, Kalmogenin biosteroid K2, Kalmogenin biosteroid K channels. Kalmogenin is the major calcium sensor. Yet, when you start reading the, the literature, you're finding out Kalmogenin is not the only calcium sensor. It's a very large family. Um, Hippocalcin is a member of that family, but there are many, many other ones. Uh, the retin has by far the biggest diversity of those. So there's a lot of those calcium binding proteins and sensors we know very little about. We know about buffers, we know about calbanine, we know about pavubulin and calretinine, but all the calcium sensors we know very little besides calmogenin. And I think, I think many surprises will be found if you start finding out why doesn't you know, have five different calcium sensors? What do they do? What's the technical definition difference between a sensor and a buffer? A buffer binds okay. calcium and nothing else happens. Yeah, okay. A sensor binds calcium and then it goes and acts on it. Yeah. So it has an effect that will lead to some kind of downstream signaling. Well, it reports the yeah. concentration, right? So that's, I mean, this thing of presynaptic terminals, I mean, it reports, these sensors can report, even at the nano domain, they can report a hundred micromolar concentrations of calcium. They are able to sense that and, and act on it, right? Okay, I want to end on a fun note, if you guys are done with that. I want to talk about this uh, atomic force microscopy that you're using to look at receptor density. Yes, this is not something I talked today. Um, so, I mentioned that yesterday to, to Sam Carlos. So what happened is, I have a collaborator at UConn, who's a mechanical engineer, and uh, he's studying atomic force microscopy and using atomic force microscopy to study cell adhesion. So together we decided to collaborate and try to test the idea whether or not we can use atomic force microscopy to map the distribution of ion channels in the surface of a living cell and then see if we can change the density and be able to measure it. And we tried to use uh, SK potassium channels for that because we know a very good toxin for it, which is apamine. Apamine um, is a B venom toxin, and its only target is SK channels. Also, it has very high affinity for SK channels, about 88 to 20 picomolar, depending on the isoform. And then, on top of that, is it's a toxin, therefore you can attach it by make a chemical interaction, you can put on a cantilever. So the way atomic force microscopy goes, you have a cantilever that will go and probe your surface. So now we decided to put the apamine on the cantilever and then go on the cells. And the idea is, well, if you find an SK channel, you bind to it, it will take more force to pull the cantilever from the surface of the cell. And that way, it will report how many SK channels you have in a small area. You can only do that one micrometer by one micrometer. It does take 20 minutes to 30 minutes. It's, just, it's a fairly, uh, it takes time to do it. But you're expressing this in culture cells, right? No. no. It's just taking a culture cell, yeah. which is native distribution, and just go around it. Right. And so that's what we try to do, and it looks like it works really well. Uh, we have submitted this paper for publication. We're waiting for the reviews to see what the reviewers think, and we think it's great. So you see little clusters of uh, SKHR? You can see, yes. I can show you afterwards if you want to. You can actually see. The, main, the key here is that apamine binds to one tetramer. So my goal was not to use antibodies, because an antibody binds to the subunit. So you have four subunits per potassium channel. You can't really quantify that. 
but instead here you have one molecule binding the whole tetramer. And then you move it every 30 nanometers, that should be enough distance to, to sample a different SK channel. And there you go, across, every 30 nanometers, you just go to the surface from one micrometer to one micrometer. And then you can actually get how many SK channels you have. You can even force. And the way to calibrate this is using hexels. And by using hexels, we can actually see switches from one force being, let's say, 25 piconewton, but we have multiple ones it moves to 50 piconewton. So you can actually use to calibrate it and come back and say, this is how many channels I think you have in your surface. The cool thing is it's a living cell. So then you can put neuromodulators. And then you can actually look theoretically in real time how long does it take to be removed? Or has it changed the distribution? So you can actually probe the soma and the dendrites. Um, it's hard to go really apical dendrites or very distal right. and spines, but it's a beginning. So but what about the, the do, do you see the um, channel, uh, channels moving? Uh, Is there diffusion of the protein? Well, in order to do that, you need to go and just probe the same channel again and again and again. Mm -hmm. And there is a jitter to that. I mean, the yeah. cantilever is very precise, but like it's do, not... Like this, right? Like yeah, you have, to do, you have to go up like and down that, the top. Uh, like that bird in the water. Yeah. Sometimes you're... But in reality, you're not going to get that. You get this, you get this, you get this. So you could test diffusion. Um, I would but say, have you seen it? Do you have you no, we have not done that experiment. Right. I would be surprised because SK channels are having a lot of uh, kinases complex together, and I would expect that to retard diffusion a lot. You never know. So yeah. we, this is just the beginning. We just thought to find, can we find a new way to complement the pre-existing ways to count? My goal was, can I count channels? Find where they are, and also have to do it. So hopefully they will, uh, we'll see what people think of it. Um, we, we liked it. It was pretty exciting. It was, for me, it was great because I can collaborate with a mechanical engineer. I never had the opportunity. And I would say that's what I really enjoy about UConn and not being a med school because we have so many different disciplines around. Mm -hmm. So I can actually go to mechanical engineer where in a med school you collaborate greatly, but then you will be within a similar discipline. I wouldn't have, I couldn't find engineers or chemists to the same level. That's, so I enjoyed quite a bit. So the atomic force microscope doesn't require any like special environment. It can be an ordinary this, human. You just, put the, this, you just need the cell. You cannot do the slice. You need to have a cell on this, have some liquid on top of it. Just take your culture dishes, you put it in. Oh, it can go right down through the water. Go down and it goes through the water. So it's a living cell. You don't have it, to how big is it? Is it yeah, so how feasible is it? It's super tiny. Oh, so it's only for a microscope is like this. Is it bigger uh, than a bread box? Yeah. It's like it's a, about the bread what, box. He's describing the bread box. What the challenge, yeah. challenge yeah. with atomic force microscopy is, is the setup has to be pretty much vibration free. Uh, yeah. That's really the challenge. Yeah, I can see why that would be. It looked like a, what you see, it looked like a lunar, uh, cubicle. I mean, it looks so cool looking, but it's all so, about. So, a regular air table for an electrophysiology rig is no. not good enough. You, you breathe out You have to. You cut the concrete out of the basement of the building. That's what they have done here. You have to go and cut it out because the vibrations are... Really so the whole moving. building is on an air table. Well, the, and then you, you isolate that piece. The, the room has to be isolated. Yeah. Into the foundation. But it's no different than buying your typical confocal. Zeiss will sell you the whole yeah. thing with all the tables and the scopes. And it's fairly expensive, but it's like buying confocal. Yeah. People use it for studying, you know, the, the major function is to study the surface of materials. 
to write IBM. This can be done in, in yeah. any kind of medium, like any, yeah, kind, any of kind of media. As long as you can not deliver with different functionalized with something that you like. The, the, the key here is to find um, the correct chemistry. You need to do it with an alkaloid or a protein. Something can actually do interaction, like a carboxyl group to bind to to the cantilever. So you need to, it's, it's a chemical interaction. So you need to have. You can, you can pass that. current. You can pass current. Oh yeah, you can do current. But you have too. to engineer the the molecule that stick under the cantilever. Yeah, but it's not as yeah. difficult as you thought. I mean, that was the surprise yeah. to us. It was like it, we did it a few times and it worked really well. And with controls, you know, if you both apply apamine, so you occlude the effect. If you don't have a cantilever with apamine, you still get it. Mm -hmm. So there, we did enough controls to make sure that what we're measuring is a force of an SK channel. Uh, but I think it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a neat new mm -hmm. approach, and we thought to find something that you don't have to always rely on antibodies, because antibodies are great, but they're really stochastic. They don't always give you, you don't buy to every single protein. So this way, you just go along the way and just... It has been used for DNA. Um, it has been used for all kinds of things. For measuring coiling of DNA in viruses, right? I mean, yeah, people functionalize pressure. it for all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Right? So we're going to see more of this in neuroscience? Are we seeing... No, we're there's we're a lot of biophysics. I mean, they, this, has, this has been... Oh, yeah, biophysics AFMs have been used in... Yeah, so this has been around since like the 80s, right? But I don't know. Tell me for Marcus. Nobody has put the toxin to probe ion channels. That's the... That's the, our contribution to the field. It's so not they haven't done that yet. They haven't done anything. That's, I mean, that's, like the that's what we care about. Yeah. 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 No, bro, I mean, it takes time, and it's one micron at a time, right? And then neurons are a little bit bigger than that. High resolution. It's about as good yeah. as it gets. Well, great. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks, Tasso. Thank this has been much. Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank you.